I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and welcome to The Economist Asks. Today, more than 2 billion people regularly share information about themselves and their family and friends on social media. Concerns about what happens to this data trail exploded in public view last March. A whistleblower came forward with evidence that a company called Cambridge Analytica mined data about millions of Facebook users without their knowledge. Cambridge Analytica and its maze of affiliates use this data for psychographic modeling. That's understanding how individuals think and using it to subtly change their behavior. In this case, it was to influence elections. Next week, the company now says data on up to 87 million people may have been improperly shared with Cambridge Analytica. That's a big job. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg will testify before three congressional committees next week about the company's handling. The information commissioner has evidence that personal data siphoned from Facebook was used in the U.S. presidential election and in the British referendum to leave the EU. The revelations raise questions not just about who can access our data and for what purpose, but about the ability of the law to protect the integrity of elections. So as part of The Economist's Open Future initiative, we're asking, is privacy and democracy safe in the age of big data? My guest today is Christopher Wiley. Chris describes himself as a queer vegan Canadian with pink hair and facial piercings. But he's also a talented data scientist. First, he built up Cambridge Analytica, then he resigned and later blew the whistle on it, testifying before a British parliamentary committee, among others. Chris Wiley, thank you for coming in. Cheers. Thanks for having me. You were initially pretty gung-ho about the use of technology, data, the internet, to support elections. And then something happened and you were less enamored with it. Mm. Why were you excited at the outset and then what happened? Um... Because there is so much potential for data and AI to totally revolutionize the world. And I still am excited about of potential positive uses of AI. I'm a data nerd. I love information. And I love modeling. This is what's going to solve cancer, right? This is, this is what is going to allow us to figure out better understandings of the economy beyond, you know, stupid economic models, right? Like, we are going to be able to take lots of data and solve all these massive questions that we've not been able to figure out for centuries because we have access to quantified information and we'll have a way of understanding that at scale. And when it comes to elections, um, we've got a problem in lots of Western countries, which people are like becoming way more disengaged and becoming disengaged because the media landscape is different and they've got a lot more distraction going on. One of the things I tell campaigns is you're not competing against your opponent, you're competing against reality TV and Kim Kardashian. So you've got to find ways to motivate and excite people about whatever your message is. So in that sense, I think that AI and data does serve a role in elections just as much as it serves a role in finding the cure for cancer. 
But like any technology that is powerful, there's dangers and responsibilities that come with that. My own experience going through Cambridge Analytica is seeing the worst possible outcome and the worst possible applications for these technologies. Was there a moment when you really sort of, when the penny dropped? I think that when conversations started happening about exploring race realism. um, What's race realism? Race realism is the alt-right's reaction to accusations of racism, whereby you concede that you might be racist, but rather than trying to then deal with the cognitive dissonance of that, you defend it and say, well, maybe I'm just being realistic about the hierarchy of people. There is no social good that will come from that. There's no social good that will come from tricking people, disseminating disinformation. There's no, there is no good that will come from that. Um, and was there an actual you, moment when you kind of when this was coming going on where you? Sort of, I, I think there's there's not. Bad. It's a misnomer. I think that whether it's whistleblowing or leaving a company or that there's a single moment. I think it's a buildup and it's accumulation of factors. It's sort of like water torture or something. It's just drip, 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 and finally you're drowning. And so there wasn't a, a singular moment. There's so many problems with how CA operated and the idea that you're taking what at the onset would have been a military technology and information operations, looking at profiling and finding ways of interfering with communication networks and your target's understanding of what's happening to exploit those vulnerabilities and then treating voters as if they are the same as an ISIS fighter, I think is egregious. Um, And so, you know, military technologies or what was going to become a military technology should be nowhere near elections. You know, one of the things that people don't realize is that the original research at Cambridge was partly funded by DARPA. So you've got American taxpayers subsidizing research in profiling, ultimately for military applications, for that research to then be appropriated and then bought by an alt-right billionaire and then repurposed and reused on the American population, some of whom paid for that. So I think that's quite perverse. I think it's quite perverse also that one of the first firms that the White House hired to work on sensitive projects in the American government was Cambridge Analytica. Obama White House or Trump White House? The Trump White House. So after Bannon joined the, uh, well, originally the National Security Council and moved into the White House, one of the first companies that got federal government contracts with State Department and I believe DOD was Cambridge Analytica. To do what? Well, that's a good question. Because what you put on a piece of paper is not necessarily, oh, and particularly with Cambridge Analytica, is not necessarily what they're doing. When you look at, for example, the NSA, CIA, the National Security Infrastructure of the United States, there are rules and restrictions on what they can do with American citizens or people in, in, inside of the United States, and rightfully so. There are not the same protections when it comes to a private company collecting data. And the concern that I had, one of the concerns that I had after Trump entered the White House and then Cambridge Analytica then starts working for the federal government is that you've got a company that can monitor everybody and their most intimate details. You've also got a president and a chief strategist who are deeply paranoid about the, quote, deep state, and then hire a company that they also own and control 
with access to, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of records of American citizens. And one of the concerns I had is that I saw the beginnings of creating a private parallel intelligence gathering operation that reported solely to the president and their political advisors without any kinds of oversight or control. And you had already left Cambridge Analytica at the time. Yes. So that is why it was building in you to then become a whistleblower. Mm. I left before Trump got elected. And I left because I had a, a lot of deep ethical concerns about what the company was doing. Like I, I can't ex- explain how it felt to watch something that I previously had contributed to become this like giant Frankenstein of a monster that also impacted the history of the world, affecting an election where you you then elect a president like Donald Trump. For me, it was just so concerning because I had met so many of the people who were then in his White House. And I knew exactly how they thought and what they wanted to do. Cambridge Analytica got found out. How many others are like them out there? Are we talking zillions or were they somewhat unique? Um, you know, I think that Cambridge Analytica is very much a canary in the coal mine in the sense that, yes, it was a, an early adopter of certain methods. Um, but there is nonetheless a, a demand for the services that they provided. And I would be skeptical that they are an exceptional example that won't happen again. And how many are we talking? Do you think that there's dozens? Do you think there's still just a few handful? I would say that there's, there's more than a handful. And uh, some of them are surprising in that they may also be government-backed in different, in different nation states. Um, These would be probably anti-democratic governments. Is that fair to say? Um, not necessarily. Not necessarily. And um, one of the things that I've found interesting in this process, having having come out, is that people come to me now and show me things. And the 2016 cycle, I think, um, people talk about Russia, they focus on Russia. But people need to also remember that lots of other countries were watching what was happening. And that some of them may have gotten some ideas as to what they may be able to implement even better than what Russia was able to do and even better than what companies like Cambridge Analytica were able to do. If you put a concerted effort into creating an influence operation online and you have access to really good tech and technical expertise, you can do a lot, particularly if you have enough time to plan. And so I think there is a concern out there that 2016 was sort of this um, this moment where you know we saw the the confluence of social media and the internet and hostile foreign actors using that as a mechanism to interfere with elections. So it gets to the question of how can we prevent this? Whether it's by the commercial side, mm. which of course was the Cambridge Analytica Facebook story, mm. or whether it's by a, a malicious actor that has no real commercial front to it, i.e. potentially a state actor or just simply who's an independent. How can we meaningfully regulate against this? Um, I think that, first of all, we need to change our mindset a little bit and understand that the protection of our democracy is a national security issue. And so, you know, when I go and talk to Republicans, for example, uh, in the United States, this is one of the things that I say. I say, look, you know, this isn't actually about pointing fingers at one party or the other, 
when any country interferes with your democracy, they're attacking you. And this is, this is a national security issue. So first of all, prioritizing it in that way. I think in terms of what we can do in terms of a legal or regulatory framework, the, I think something that would make technology companies sort of stand up and pay attention is if you actually create legal liability for companies when misuse of their platforms happen. Currently, you have companies like Facebook who can say, we are the victim here, and they can continue to say, you know, we are a victim, we are a victim, but nonetheless, they are creating the platform that is creating the vulnerability in the first place. And so in order to spur their own brilliant technical innovation, there needs to be some kind of compelling reason for them to put resources and effort into it beyond just how they see it right now, which is a PR issue. So if you required, for example, technology companies to take out insurance on data breaches or misuse of their platforms, all of a sudden you would create a dynamic where they have to negotiate with an insurance company uh, and all of a sudden there's now a financial imperative to make sure that they start taking some of these issues seriously. But in the case of Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, who was at fault? Was it Cambridge Analytica who engaged with Alexander Kogan, collected the data without the terms being absolutely crystal clear in terms of how it was being used, disclosed as academic research when it was actually not just academic research? Well, that's not entirely true because actually the terms and conditions that were sent to Facebook, which Facebook then approved, actually outlines that it was not an academic project, that that data would be commercialized. So Facebook has been somewhat uh, misleading in my view as to their role and their culpability in the project because they were made aware in writing as to what the application was going to do. So they had a failure to police what was going on on their platform, Uh, but they also had a malicious actor who was doing things against their own rules. uh, Yes. Um, One of the things that I would say is in in this entire sort of uh, story, there's no single person or organization that is at fault in entirety. It was accumulation of failures on many, many people's parts. And I would include myself in, in that. Do you have any sympathy for Facebook? No. Why not? Because it's their job to make sure that their platform, first of all, follows the terms and conditions that they set out, and B, that their platform is safe for users. Two billion they, people on, they, on the platform, they, a lot of people to police. Well, but if you are a company that makes money off of those two billion people, surely you have a duty of care to those people. Nothing's perfect. They found out there was a problem. They then eventually staunched the problem. Too late actually, and woefully. Actually, no, they, okay. they, they didn't because they were aware of the problem as far back as 2016 – I have written communication with them about it in 2016, and they didn't do anything. And this is the problem, is that we can't just blindly trust a company to police itself because they won't do it if there is a potential PR risk to actually going out and announcing to the users you know, who've been affected that, oh, by the way, your data might have been misappropriated or has been misappropriated, and by the way, that might now be in St. Petersburg. Uh, in Russia. So the excuse that, oh, our technology is too complicated, our technology is too big, well, then deal with it. 
you know, you're a multi-billion dollar company, right? It's no excuse to say that you're too big. This is the same argument that banks would make. You know, we're too big to fail. We're too big to, to make a, a safe platform. If you're too big, then make yourself smaller. Let's really be clear about what the data is, however. Yeah. The data is data that they've already, that the user, him or herself, has already tried to make public insofar as they shared it with their community. It's just been a misappropriation of well, that data. Well, I think this gets into a false dichotomy of what private versus public information is. Because one of the things that I find frustrating about how Facebook has spoken about this is that it sort of assumes that unless it's kept solely private in a private message, it's somehow quote-unquote public, right? And, and it would be the equivalent of saying that either you sitting alone, solitary in a room, and that's the only time where something is private, versus you, for example, sitting in a living room talking to friends, right? If you sit in a living room talking to friends, there is a certain degree of publicity that you are giving to yourself to one, two, three, four, five people who are sitting there. And that conversation is amongst friends. That doesn't mean that somebody else is entitled to open the window and peer in and listen into that conversation. And so that's the equivalence of what the application was doing. You're publishing things to a limited set of people who Facebook calls your friends or you might have acquaintances, whatever, you know, that's up to you. That doesn't mean that if you publish something to 20 people, to 30 people, to 50 people, that that means that the entire world is entitled to see it. People don't engage in privacy as either wholly private or wholly public. So it's a spectrum. True. And that example, the analogy that you're using cross-applied to Facebook is something that Facebook itself has staunched down on. Now, yeah. have they done enough? Do you think that this has been the wake-up call for them? Or do you think their processes are still woefully inadequate? I don't even know where to begin. I, I think that when you look at you know, this ad campaign that they have right now, you know, fake fake news is not your friend. And we found others just like us. And just like that, we felt a little less alone. But then something happened. We had to deal with spam, clickbait, fake news, and data misuse. That's going to change. From now on, Facebook will do more to keep you safe and protect your privacy so we can all get back to what made Facebook good in the first place. They finally conceded that they should take Infowars and some of the incredibly misleading and vitriolic messaging off of their platform only after one of their competitors did it, right? Um, And so they consistently refused to engage with the importance of this issue beyond just putting out some ads. I think that... When you look at also how how they've sort of reacted, I think there's also a risk of them sort of overreacting in certain ways. Like when they removed access to third-party data vendors in the name of privacy, one of the concerns that I have is actually that they're just creating a more dominant market position because at some point they're just going to be the only source of personal information. Are you happy with what's happened in the wake of your revelations or were you hoping for more political or corporate change? So right now, everyone is at least aware that this is an issue. There was not even any kind of awareness. If you take a step back and go, you know, one, two years before, if there would be an international discussion on data protection, privacy, and the role of social media, or the rather the risks of social media to um, how our society is engaging with itself, whether it's in an election or even just us as humans and getting along and sharing the same reality, um, it would have seemed too niche of a thing. So at least now there's a discussion about it. And 
the other thing that I've noticed, having now dealt with quite a few um, data and privacy regulators around the world, is that before you had sort of this attitude of acquiescence to, you know, there's only so much that we can do with these big tech giants. So let's like hold their hand and try to get to some sort of pseudo form of compliance. But now you've got the data cops on the data beat and they're looking for data crime, right? And, and, <laughs> and like within, because I've, I've been working with authorities before the story actually came out and I've, I've seen just a, a total shift in mentality. Like, hey, wait a second, these are real crimes. We've got actual powers and we should be enforcing them. And just because you've got this big company in the United States is no excuse for non-compliance with the law. Chris Wiley, thank you. Cheers. We should note that in July, Britain's data protection watchdog, the Information Commissioner's Office, announced a half a million pound fine for the alleged misuse of data. Facebook denies it is a breach and it is investigating. On August 22nd, Facebook released a statement stating that, quote, we will continue to investigate apps and make the changes needed to our platform to ensure we are doing all we can to protect people's information, end of quote. And what do you think? Are platforms doing enough to protect privacy? And are governments able to prevent the misuse of data to manipulate voters? We want to hear from you. Please email us at radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio using the hashtag OpenFuture. Thanks for listening. In London, I'm Kenneth Kukier, and this is The Economist. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.